Hey everybody, it is Tuesday, February 18th, 2020, and you're listening to an episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Eslick, and I'm here to talk to you about car news, car culture, and car whatever. On today's episode, we're going to touch on the big news that broke on Monday from GM, uh, basically shutting down their vehicle operations in Southeast Asia. Uh, there are some pretty big ramifications that come out of this for GM, not only in that territory, uh, but I think also globally. And I think that's a big thing that a lot of people are missing out on because uh, a lot of important development work was done down in Australia, New Zealand, and in Thailand. Uh, other big kind of news things that I think are at least interesting to talk about. A uh, big dealership association meeting uh, happened over the weekend. I don't remember where, uh, but the story was, on, I believe, on Autoblog, talking about uh, car companies that are basically at least dealership chains that are demanding uh, that automakers continue to build sedans. Uh, they they feel like these are markets that still sell well. Uh, the sales seem to be demonstrating that largely. Uh, and with GM, Ford, many other car companies saying that they're no longer going to build sedans uh, for the American market, uh, things aren't exactly looking good for these dealerships. So we'll talk a bit about uh, those particular companies, what these kind of talks are about. Uh, yeah, this kind of, I guess, goes hand in hand almost with the GM uh, decision about Australia, New Zealand, and Thailand. In the car culture segment, I wanted to touch on my experience at the 2020 Chicago Auto Show. Uh, lots of interesting things seen, some less so, uh, but uh, really just a crazy, busy show. I don't think I've seen the Chicago Auto Show this busy in a really, really long time. Uh, but there's definitely some takeaways to be seen, uh, at least with what was and was not at the Chicago Auto Show this year. Uh, last up in the car whatever section, I want to talk about luxury SUVs, specifically used luxury SUVs. Uh, if you've ever watched the Fast Lane truck, uh, the Fast Lane car, the Fast Lane classic, any of those YouTube channels, you know that they purchase a lot of used luxury off-road vehicles uh, and retrofit them in different ways or just try to run them for a while and see what they're like. And boy, has it sent me down a rabbit hole. Uh, yeah, we'll kind of elaborate more on that at the end of the show. But anyway, guys, uh, this is the part where I remind you that uh, the Savage Shuttle podcast is done for free here on Anchor.fm, and we post it to basically every podcasting platform that's out there, whether you're on uh, Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google, Spotify, uh, Pocket Casts, anything like that, uh, we're there. So make sure if you're enjoying the podcast, you do hit that subscribe button. Uh, if you think there's something worth sharing, sharing it is great. And uh, if you're on a platform that takes a review for podcasts, if you could give us one, uh, that'd be fantastic as well. It does help us get seen by other people. Anyway, guys, uh, after the bump, we will touch on the breaking news from General Motors. So late in the evening on Sunday into early Monday, you know how time changes work. Uh, it was announced that General Motors is ceasing vehicle operations in Australia, New Zealand, and Thailand. Uh, it's important to note that these are all right-hand drive markets, and it sounds as though General Motors will be discontinuing sales of vehicles in all right-hand markets uh, going forward. The argument from General Motors is that basically their return on investment in these marketplaces uh, simply is no longer worth the effort. 
the Holden brand in particular would have been the main source of uh, sales in Australia and New Zealand and Thailand. It was the Chevrolet brand. Uh, they've also been doing a lot of manufacturing both in Australia and in Thailand over the years. And this uh, ultimately ends up being the death knell for GM in each of these markets. Uh, it's kind of a big muddled mess as to how all of this is going to be executed. GM is saying that specifically for Holden in Australia and New Zealand, uh, these dealerships have through the end of the year uh, to be full out uh, operational things. They may still sell some cars into 2021, uh, but uh, for the most part, end of 2020, uh, things are wrapped up. Uh, GM is currently negotiating contracts with some of those dealers to continue selling and maintaining some level of General Motors vehicle sales. Uh, what this likely means is just legacy uh, parts and refurbishment uh, capabilities. Uh, but GM's also saying that they might still sell some vehicles in Australia and New Zealand that are retrofitted by local uh, a local Australian company, Walkinshaw. Uh, basically, they would retrofit the Chevrolet Silverado, the Camaro, and potentially sell the new Corvette uh, all as Chevrolet vehicles. It's very confusing. Uh, basically, they're creating this sub-brand within the company called General Motors Special Vehicles, and this company would operate in Southeast Asia to sell these cars uh, in Australia and New Zealand and support them, uh, both in terms of uh, parts and repairs, but they still wouldn't have a physical operation there. Again, very confusing. Uh, what this does mean is basically, uh, well, it's official that Holden is dead uh, in Australia, Holden had been a longtime sales leader uh, on the island uh, for many, many years, both islands uh, for many, many years. Uh, of course, the legendary Ford versus Holden uh, arguments among many people in Australia, uh, the, the races up and down Bathurst. I mean, it, it's, it's insane thinking that this major car company is going away. I mean, the only thing that I think we've had close to that here in the United States was uh, the death of Oldsmobile back in the early aughts, uh, maybe to some extent the, the death of Saab and Saturn and many others at GM. Uh, but what it really boils down to is uh, GM just says, you know, these markets aren't worth it. Uh, Holden, I think a number that got thrown up earlier today when I was looking at stuff was like, just in like New Zealand, they're selling 12,000 cars a year. Uh, to put that kind of in perspective, you know, a lot of the other top brands in New Zealand in particular were only selling 20,000 vehicles or less a year. So that's not a particularly huge market. But, you know, of course, to operate a dealer network, to operate parts supplies, to operate, you know, any kind of vehicle launches, things like that, it is an expensive endeavor. And for GM to spend the money on that does require a lot of time and investment and you know, it ultimately just isn't worth it in their eyes. Uh, Holden, on the other hand, you know, in Australia, a much bigger thing. You know, Toyota has run away with the market altogether. Uh, Ford, it looks like, is going to be the only one who's sticking with the Australian market, at least of the American brands for right now. Uh, but what 
a tragedy, uh, I would say. Uh, like I said up at the top of the show, the other thing that's kind of missing from the component of talking about this is the amount of development work that's done in Australia and in Thailand uh, for General Motors vehicles that are sold all over the world. Uh, case in point, obviously the Pontiac G8 uh, Holden Commodore eventually became the Caprice PPV here in the U.S. and then later the Chevy SS. Uh, all of those were developed in Australia. That also includes the previous generation Chevy Camaro. Uh, so many other things. Uh, Cadillac CTSs were developed down there. Uh, down in Australia, they really have a, 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 what do you want to call it? They have a sense for how to tune a chassis in terms of like a ride handling balance that is, you know, compliant but still fun. Uh, you know, Australia is a market that is eerily similar to the United States but have a few separate demands uh, and it's really unfortunate that such a major iconic car company when it comes to engineering and development uh, will no longer exist. And a lot of people are saying that, uh, at least in the case for Holden, you know, they were basically getting by with imported vehicles uh, that basically came from the United States, and that was largely true. Uh, the Commodore uh, eventually lined up with the Insignia and the Regal worldwide, which is not exactly a good combination for a vehicle. Peugeot, of course, you know, bought Opel, uh, the car company that had been building them for GM. Uh, Peugeot basically said, we're done doing this thing, uh, you know, no more cars for you, you know, Obviously, we knew that the Commodore was going away, and for GM to invest the time and money and energy to build a new Commodore in a market that is already quite small and may or may not be exported anywhere else, you know, again, it makes some level of sense as to why they're doing it that way, but uh, I don't 100% agree with it uh, outright. Thailand, on the other hand, uh, has been really important for uh, larger vehicle uh, development and manufacturing. Uh, the Chevrolet Colorado that we have on sale in the U.S. right now is actually a uh, model that came from Thailand a few years ago, and it was modernized to American kind of fits and standards. Uh, Previous iterations of the Duramax diesel engines were developed in Thailand and brought to the United States. You know, there's important work that's done in Southeast Asia, and for GM to just go, eh, it's over, uh, it just seems extremely abrupt and without super great reasoning. Um, the other big thing is, you know, if this is the case, if the money's that tight, if they're going to justify abandoning basically an entire part of the world uh, because the money just isn't worth it. Uh, how bad are things here at home? Uh, we know GM is struggling to recapture uh, sales of so many different segments. We know that GM is trying to control costs like many other car companies these days. Uh, but if you're abandoning an entire continent, uh, an entire region of the planet, uh, this really seems like, you know, this should be red flag number 72 of where things might get really bad with GM once again, uh, because if they can't get this stuff to work in these countries where they have been the bee's knees for a long time, uh, who's to say that they're going to be able to be the bee's knees here in North America or Europe or anywhere else anytime soon? Because GM largely doesn't exist in Europe anymore. Uh, they're basically in a North American car company. They sell cars in Canada, Mexico, uh, you know, here in the United States. They do some stuff in South America. Uh, but yeah, that's it. Really, there's nothing else in their portfolio. And 
that's kind of scary, especially when you also consider that the Corvette was meant to be a globally launched vehicle. Uh, what does this do in Southeast Asia? Does this even mean that they're going to be building one uh, for the UK, for the rest of Europe? Uh, this genuinely seems like a somewhat scary thing. Uh, and I, I don't think we're going to know the full ramifications of this, you know, being a thing uh, until the end of the year. Uh, the Australian government is really upset about this right now because they had spent a ton of money investing in General Motors manufacturing plants and many other things with GM over the years. Uh, basically, they feel like, you know, why did we spend the time and energy to help you, uh, you know, work in this country to keep jobs here, to keep development stuff here, and GM's just doing the shoulder shrug and going, what are you going to do about it? And, you know, that's incredibly shitty too. And it's a bad situation for everyone. Thousands of jobs are going to be lost uh, in Australia and New Zealand and Thailand. Maybe the only bit of good news out of this entire thing is that General Motors has signed an agreement with a manufacturing partner in uh, China, whose name I'm totally forgetting. I don't think it's Great Wall. It might be Great Wall. Uh, one of the Chinese car companies is basically going to buy their manufacturing operation in Thailand uh, to start building. I think it's SAIC, whichever brand that is. I'm completely blanking out. That's the one. Uh, they're going to be building, uh, is that Shanghai Automotive? Sorry. I think it's Shanghai Automotive. They're buying the manufacturing plants and facilities in uh, Thailand from General Motors, and they're basically going to continue vehicle manufacturing operations, albeit with new vehicles, uh, after the transition at the end of this year. Um, yeah, what what a mess, to say the least. It, it's going to be uh, not good to watch, uh, but, you know, I guess there are worse things to come, uh, depending on how GM continues to operate things. And kind of tangentially connected to that, uh, there was a news story today on Autoblog uh, talking about one of the dealer, sh uh, the dealer association meetings. Uh, I think it was happening out west. Basically, what they're touching on is that a lot of brands, uh, specifically ones that they cited were Lincoln and Chevrolet, are demanding, dealers are demanding, that uh, General Motors and Ford Motor Company continue to produce sedans beyond the current windows with which they think cars, sedans, are going to be feasible in their lineups. Uh, what they're basically saying is that without these cheaper vehicles available on dealer lots, uh, they have no chance of making any money. There are a lot of people who come to car dealers to look at higher-priced vehicles, and they end up walking away with something that is smaller and cheaper. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of people out there, myself included, many other people in my generation included, that can't afford a brand new car or SUV. And in the end, you know, there's still people who go, I want to buy a Chevy Malibu. I want to buy a Ford uh, uh, Fusion. I want to buy a Lincoln Town Car. You know, they want cars. People are used to cars. And even if the market largely is shifting away towards crossovers and SUVs, there's still going to be a market for sedans. This is why Toyota is talking so much about how their major reinvestment in the Prius with all-wheel drive, the Camry and the Avalon with all-wheel drive, Nissan doubling down on their sedan portfolio, Hyundai really going to bat with their sedan portfolio. Uh, all these car companies are going, sure, if Ford wants to leave, if GM wants to leave, Chrysler's already left, all these car companies, you're just freeing up sales for everybody else to snatch away from you. Because the reality I think a lot of these car companies are looking at is, you know, a good 30, 
maybe a little bit more percent of buyers maybe switch to a crossover within the same portfolio, that car company is still going to make a decent amount of money. But there's still, you know, 40, 60% of people who go, I still want a car. And when your option starts coming down to, well, mostly Asian import brands, you know, it's no wonder that a lot of these car companies, these car dealerships are going, uh, hey, you know, we still want money and you're basically taking it away from us by not offering these vehicles. Uh, one of the things that gets cited later into that article on Autoblog is about how uh, small car sales and sedan sales have dropped. Like nobody, nobody's arguing against that, but there still are standout things uh, and a lot of different manufacturers lineups that are indicating that car sales are still strong. Uh, the Ford Fusion, for example, we've talked about this on the show, uh, had a surprisingly good 2019. There was actually a rise in sedan sales at Ford uh, after they announced that they were getting rid of the car. Uh, over at Chevrolet, they've had a significant spike in sales of the Chevy Spark after its most recent redesign. The Sonic has fallen off, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that the Sonic is very, very old and not a very good choice in its size segment. Uh, the Cruze is gone. Uh, the Malibu may be going away soon. Lincoln is going, you know, we can have these crossovers and SUVs. That's great. People seem to really like them. But not having the MKZ, which has been a very popular car, or the Continental, uh, seems like a big mistake. And in the end, you know, I think a lot of American brands just have to start thinking about what they can do to shore up those cheap car buyers. Uh, we touched on a story seemingly months ago now about how uh you know kind of winding back to a point i just made about how honda and toyota and so many other car companies are eager to see american car companies drop these vehicles off because they just go you know free sales for us uh we're going to spend the time money and energy to make this segment worth shopping again and if you're not going to play ball uh that just means there's more you know game for us and it, it's it's insane that these dealers are going, they're basically screaming at GM and Ford and saying, you need to give us this. And it seems like Ford and GM have no interest in listening to them. Uh, it's it's going to be a topsy-turvy thing, I think, for a while. And, you know, it was definitely indicated very much so at the Chicago Auto Show. So after the bump, uh, we'll touch on some of the things we saw in Chicago this year. Uh, it's a big change for sure in the automotive segment coming up so every year right around the second to third week of february uh we've got the chicago auto show down in chicago illinois it is the largest by square footage auto show in the united states it's an auto show that i personally really like because a lot of the vehicles that are shown off are more uh utilitarian more likely to be purchased by an average family uh or buyer and in the end you know it's it's one of those down to earth car shows uh here in chicago this year we talked about in a previous episode some of the announcements that kind of came all of a sudden all at once uh one day and uh well after having gone to the show um definitely interesting to see some of the things up close that at least have been talked about uh we're gonna kind of meander a bit so you know feel free to skip around uh but i'm gonna try to remember as many of the things that we saw that was worth talking about so uh bear 
with me. Uh, first up was the Chevrolet Trailblazer. It's a 2021 model. Uh, this is the new subcompact crossover coming from Chevrolet uh, to semi-sort of replace the Chevy Trax in the lineup, uh, but not quite eat the sales of the Equinox. Uh, this new Trailblazer was initially designed, if I remember correctly, for Asia, uh, and is instead being sent here to the U.S. Uh, all in all, I have to say that the new Trailblazer looks nice. Uh, it does ape a lot of its style from the larger Blazer SUV, which I still think is one of the better looking ones out on the market, even though it lacks a lot of refinement. Uh, the new Trailblazer looks like it is, you know, it's... It's doing the right things is maybe a good way to say it for where the subcompact crossover market is. Uh, it's not overly large. It rides up high enough. It has decent looking quality materials. Uh, none of the cars were open for you to be able to go in and touch them. Uh, I think the big question is, you know, packaging and pricing. The vehicle that it is most closely related to, shares the same engine, chassis, powertrain, etc., is the uh, Buick Encore GX, which is on sale now. The Encore GX starts in the mid, low, mid to upper $20,000 range, a fully maxed out Encore GX is going to run you into the mid $30,000 range, and that is a full-on luxury vehicle. The Chevy, on the other hand, is meant to be a little bit more affordable. Uh, they definitely know where their buyers are at. You know, they're people who are probably coming off of uh, leases of Chevy Cruises, uh, Chevy Sonics, things like that. And there are also people who maybe want to cross shop, you know, the Chevy Renegade, or sorry, not Chevy Renegade, the Jeep Renegade, uh, the Jeep Compass, uh, vehicles like that. Uh, all said, I think the Trax would have been a pretty good vehicle this year if it launched by itself. Uh, we'll talk about one of its main contenders in a little bit. Uh, but uh, in the end, you know, it looks the part, especially if you get the... Uh, What's the trim level called? The all-terrain? The terrain? I, I'm totally blanking on the trim package that you get. Uh, basically, it gives it a little bit more plastic cladding, gives it a little bit of a ride height thing, gives a, puts it on slightly more aggressive looking tires. Uh, that one they had in brown, it looked great, but the regular, you know, LSLT model that they had, nothing really to write home about. Uh, so, eager to see it in person but not exactly getting my hopes up, uh, which kind of flies in the face to how I feel about the Buick Encore. So I guess we'll kind of skip ahead a little bit, at least in cars that we saw. Uh, I talked about the Buick Encore at the Grand Rapids Auto Show. We saw it again at the Chicago Auto Show, and I have to say, I really like the Buick Encore a lot. Uh, I started doing some pricing things, stuff like that. Uh, all things being considered, you're getting a pretty good amount of content for about... $27,000, $29,000, give or take. It's kind of weird how they do the pricing stuff on their website. Uh, the other interesting thing is the content is kind of all over the board with what you do and don't get, too. They offer a lot of higher-end trim stuff in mid- and lower-trim models, uh, but depending on which powertrain you have or which option package you select, it forces you to do other things, and it gets kind of messy. Best I could tell... You're looking at about $28,000, $29,000 for a pretty well-equipped car. So when I say that, you know, heated seats, automatic climate control, um, some of the standard safety features. It doesn't have the automatic cruise control, but it is an option. I think it's like $1,800 to get that. Um, you know, it seems pretty good. I think the big key here for me, at least with the Encore GX, is if it launches and it doesn't sell particularly well, that ultimately will mean that Buick will put some pretty big incentives on the table 
And if they do things with like what they normally do, especially here in Michigan, where they cut 15 to 20% off the MSRP of a vehicle, uh, that gets into very good pricing territory. Uh, a Buick Encore equipped the right way for like less than 25 grand, I think is an ultimately a huge bargain uh, because the materials feel great. The craftsmanship looks pretty good. Uh, and in the end, I think it'd be a vehicle that a lot of people would be very happy with, uh, myself included. But if the Chevy's, you know, a grand or two less, that seems like just a waste of money. So uh, it's a pretty narrow threshold that GM has uh, on that particular model set. Now, sticking back with Chevrolet, um, we saw a lot of other things that, you know, I'd already seen. The new Corvette, it's a thing. A lot of people were gawking at it, surrounded, surrounding it, and that's always a good thing. The convertible model uh, looks all right. I think the way that the roof mechanism uh, looks when it's down and going up is kind of a mess, uh, but I'm being very picky. I'm, I'm still not very hot on this Corvette. I like the idea of it. I think it's cool that we have an American you know, sports car that's gonna definitely take the 911 up on, you know, what's the cheapest, fastest thing you can get that's gonna be relatively reliable. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like a Corvette. And I think that's really kind of where I'm trapped in the past, uh, which is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, what was definitely evident is how many trucks GM has, uh, especially at Chevrolet and also GMC. Uh, they did have the brand new uh, Tahoe, Yukon, Suburban, Yukon XL uh, at the Chevy and GMC booths. Uh, these new crossover SUVs, or I guess they're not crossovers, they're SUVs. Uh, you know, I'd say they look pretty good. They're, they're big and imposing, just like the pickup trucks that they're based on. Uh, the quality and craftsmanship looks pretty good. I think my main takeaway, I would say, uh, at least based on looking at them up close, is that the Chevy doesn't feel all that special. The GMC looks like a lot more attention got paid to it, uh, in the same way that the Cadillac Escalade got a lot more attention between the other two. Um, but, you know, if it were my money, and we already know that there's not much money between a Suburban and a Yukon XL or a Tahoe and a Yukon, uh, I think I would automatically, just like with the pickup trucks, choose the GMC. Uh, the, the separate interior that the GMC gets looks much nicer. Um, it looks like it flows a lot better in terms of use. It just really seems like the better one to get. Uh, but that being said, you know, they don't let you touch them. They let you stand next to them. Uh, you can't get inside them, but uh, at least based on inspection, I think, I think the GMCs are the ones to get. Uh, again, sticking with Chevy and not really going back to GMC at all. Um, they did have two special edition Silverados that I think are worth mentioning uh, at the Chicago Auto Show. First one was a real tree camo edition uh, Silverado. Uh, the second was the uh, Carhartt edition uh, Silverado HD. Now that real tree one is based on the 1500 uh, body. Uh, the one they had there was a quad cab with the uh, short bed. Uh, it comes with like the sticker graphic on the back uh, quarter panel of the bed. Uh, and it's got a special uh, bed layout that has the real tree logo in it. Uh, I have to say that it doesn't exactly look bad, but it's definitely an indication of GM knowing where their target market is. Whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. Uh, there were definitely some uh, interesting folks gawking at the Realtree model. Uh, you know, <laughs> 
<laughs> it's not good to call them rednecks, but I, I don't really know what other kind of word you can use to describe it. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think they're going to sell a lot of these trucks in a lot of parts of the United States. Uh, I might be selling the camo ideology short here, but uh, yeah, there, there's a gun-toting, hunting, fishing, whatever type of guy that's really into that thing. And I think Chevrolet made a good move by partnering with this company to do this kind of vehicle. No idea what kind of cost you get associated with this truck on that kind of uh, uh, package. I imagine it's a couple of grand to get those graphics on the back. Uh, long term, I can't imagine those graphics would stay on the truck all that well, but, you know, who knows? It's hard to say. Uh, these new Silverados are fine in every sense of the word. Um, but, you know, getting some stickers on the back and a special bed liner doesn't really seem to me uh, like that good of a deal. Going on over to the Carhartt Edition Silverado 2500, uh, I think you're looking at a truck that has really good packaging. Uh, the special edition black paint with the yellow pinstriping, uh, the in leather interior that's meant to have the trim that looks like the uh, duck leather, like the duck jacket material, but it's leather. I think it's really cool. I think they did a much better job with the Carhartt truck simply because you get the big metal Carhartt logo. Uh, it's got the Carhartt word branding on the side. The tonneau cover on the back has the Carhartt logo stamped in it. Um, you know, it looks the part. It looks premium. It looks nice. It looks like something that somebody who wears a lot of Carhartt, who does a lot of hard work, who's got the money to afford it, uh, would buy it. And, you know, I, I have to say to some extent that if I ever had the need for a 2500 pickup truck, that would probably be in my in my neck of the woods of where I'd want to go. Uh, but in the end, you know, it's still very expensive. I think the thing is like more than $60,000, which is crazy. Uh, but the other part is that you're saddled with the fact that you own a Chevrolet 2500 pickup truck. Uh, they're ugly as sin. Uh, they're way too big. Um, I'm just not a fan of the 2500 Chevy trucks right now. Um, you know, that could change with some stuff that comes later, but... Yeah, I, I, I like the package idea. I like the way that it looks. Uh, it felt really nice. It looks good, but yeah, no thanks on the Chevrolet pickup truck aspect of things. Uh, one of the other interesting brands that we looked at uh, are, well, two companies that I talk a lot about. Uh, that is both Hyundai and Kia. Hyundai and Kia uh, have been knocking out of the park recently. I talk about it seemingly every episode of this show, uh, but case in point are two specific vehicles. Uh, the first of which is the Kia Seltos, which I have mistakenly called the Stonic way too many times, but the Seltos is what we're going to have here in the U.S. Uh, reviews of the Seltos also came out today, which we'll probably talk about in a later episode. Uh, but I have to say, I'm incredibly impressed with this vehicle. Uh, I, we've talked about kind of pricing and packaging on this vehicle on a previous episode of this podcast, but I had not seen one in person. Uh, the size is slightly larger than that of a Kona, um, a little bit bigger than a Jeep Compass overall, uh, but, you know, it's got the Kia... Uh, look to it. And by that, I mean it's got the tiger nose grill. It's got some interesting uh, detailing on the front that's like this textured pattern on the metal that goes around uh, towards the back of the vehicle. Uh, the interior has got a lot of the styling cues from the new Telluride. Uh, in the end, you know, the Stonic, I think, or not the Stonic, excuse me, the Seltos is a vehicle that is sized right, it is priced right, uh, it has got the right kind of equipment. Uh, the build quality was excellent. 
I'm I'm just blown away by how much I like this vehicle. And again, as somebody who does not like crossovers, saying that they like this crossover quite a bit, uh, it is a big deal, I think, uh, because they, I think, are going to win a lot of people over. Um, we'll kind of pull a, kind of a note from something, some content we'll probably talk about later with the Saltos on this show is... Uh, Kia basically started developing this thing as a four-wheel drive uh, Kia uh, Soul. And in the end, the idea of a four-wheel drive Kia Soul kind of stepped away from what the Soul has always been. And so the Seltos came in and really kind of jumped off from that project. Uh, it really seems like Kia took the time to analyze all the details, analyze the things that people care about, um, and really, you know, make a package that is uh, ultimately very compelling. Uh, we spent a lot of time kind of sitting in and poking a uh, SX trim model. And that one, you know, has all the leather, all the soft touch materials. Um, but there's still some hard plastics in areas of the car that uh, maybe I go shouldn't have hard touch plastics there. Like the top of the doors, like where the window is. Um, but I think there's also an argument to be made that how often are you, you know, touching that and it's not very often uh and so you know if that's going to cut some costs to get nicer things elsewhere i'm really willing to let it go uh but yeah it it looks really good and we they had a mid-trim ex all-wheel drive parked next to the sx and you know comparing the two side by side you don't really miss the premium wheels. You don't really miss the full leather interior. You don't really miss the, the leather pad that's on the dash. Uh, you know, even switching to slightly less content, I think you're still getting a screaming deal. You're still getting a bigger touch screen. Uh, it, it just looks the part. It looks, it works really well. And I think in the end, this car makes a very compelling argument for the shift to crossovers, I hate to say it, uh, because if efforts are going to be this good, uh, I don't see any reason why you would cho choose a Soul over a Seltos uh, here in the U.S. It just seems absolutely crazy. Now, the Kissing Cousin brand, uh, Hyundai, had a lot of, uh, you know, the usual suspects on their platform. Uh, but the big thing was the Hyundai Sonata Hybrid. Uh, the new version of the Hyundai Sonata Hybrid is based on the all-new Sonata. Uh, it's got a lot of neat tricks and features in it that gets the car up to 52 miles per gallon on the highway. Uh, that is pretty impressive for a car at size. It's also pretty impressive considering the amount of standard equipment that you get in the car. Uh, and it does have an optional solar roof that does charge the car to add up to two miles of electric range to the battery each day. Uh, I'm, again, blown away by how nice the Sonata is. Uh, it looks good. It sounds like it drives quite well. Uh, the build quality and the ones that we looked at were absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's loaded to the gills with tech that you would want, including all the active safety equipment. I believe it has radar cruise control and a lot of the mid-trim models. Uh, you know, for all said, for right around 30 grand or less, you're going to get a really good family sedan. And I think it was Kelly Blue Black today who said that uh, it's the one to get at this point in time. Um, and that's that's pretty high praise. Now, that being said, we don't have the new Optima in the U.S. yet. I have a feeling the Optima is going to edge the uh, Sonata just a little bit. Uh, but the, the Korean car companies, uh, they are... They're doing a great job, and uh, we'll we'll talk about another few Kia announcements that came out today uh, in a later episode. 
But uh, yeah, they're doing an absolutely fantastic job. Now, wrapping up the first half of the Chicago Auto Show discussion, uh, it's worth noting some of the absences, at least in the one hall that we were in, uh, overall. First of which, I think, is the Honda and Nissan booth. Uh, generally, a lack of anything that's there. Uh, they had tons and tons of space, but almost nothing to show off. Uh, at least in terms of Nissan, they did have one new Sentra and one new Versa parked next to the new Altima, and they all looked exactly the same. And I have to say, I really do like the new Sentra quite a bit. I really like the new uh uh, the new Versa quite a bit. I like the new Altima quite a bit, but when they're kind of tucked away and pushed to the side, uh, it doesn't really do a lot of good things for the company. They also had the all-new, uh, well, not necessarily all-new, but they had the updated Nissan Frontier with the new engine package for the all-new version that's coming next year. Uh, a lot of people are interested in that, but I think for the wrong reasons. Uh, they did have a million-mile Frontier Park next to it, which I think got a little more attention overall. But uh, yeah, it, it was sad, I would say, in the Nissan booth this year. The Honda booth in particular struck me as incredibly sad just because they had almost nothing there to show off. And when they had cars there, they were parked so far away from one, one another that, you know, it looked like Honda wasn't doing anything. Uh, I don't really know why, they chose to set up their booth that way. Uh, it seems like in the past, you know, they would show several different versions of the Civic, several different versions of the Accord, several different versions of the Pilot, and everything else, and it just seemed like they just had nothing to show off, and it's really sad, because Honda, of course, builds great cars. So does Nissan, and in the end, you know, I think it kind of spells out how much the focus is on crossovers because they had several CRVs, they had several pilots, they had several, you know, rogues and rogue sports and whatever else, but, you know, one or two of each of the cars and it just seemed so disappointing and like such such a huge waste of space compared to like Chevrolet across the way where things are packed in and they still had a Sonic there and they still had a Spark there and they still had a Malibu there and it felt weird to see that at the Chevy booth, uh, but at Honda, you know, adding anything to the booth would have seemed like a good idea uh, because uh, it was virtually empty. <clears throat> now, heading across the way uh, in the, uh, well, the madness that is the Chicago Auto Show, it's an auto show that's split up into two halves because it's so large. Uh, the Toyota booth was a booth that, uh, well, was genuinely using its space as best it could. Uh, I have never seen so many people in a brand new car area before in my life. I've gone to the Chicago Auto Show way too many times, the Detroit Auto Show way too many times. Uh, the Toyota booth, you could barely walk around inside of it. Uh, they had so many different versions of the Supra, so many different versions of the Camry, uh, several different versions of the Corolla, bunch of different uh, new Highlanders and RAV4s. It was packed in their booth to the gills. And, you know, a lot of that, I think, is because Toyota is going, uh, we know what we're doing. We're going to bring these cars out to the market, uh, and we're going to basically run the show. Uh, Toyota sales are on the up for the most part. Uh, the RAV4 is the best-selling non-F-150 vehicle in the United States. Uh, Toyota's, you know, swinging for the fences. You know, bringing the all-wheel drive Avalon, the all-wheel drive Corolla, the TRD Avalon, and uh, sorry, not Corolla, Camry, the TRD Avalon and Camry, 
uh, a bunch of different special editions of the uh, Tacoma, Forerunner, and uh, Sequoia and Tundra to the show. Uh, really, they had something for everybody at their booth. Um, really no major remarks to be said other than the new Highlander is very nice. I like that SUV quite a bit. It's the first time I think I've liked the Highlander at all since it was first introduced back in the mid-2000s. Uh, the new uh, special edition versions of the Tacoma, uh, Tundra, and Forerunner, uh, that's the Nightshade and the Trail Edition, uh, I think they seem like smart add-ons to the current lineup of trucks. Uh, they had one Land Cruiser kind of pushed away to the side, very solemn and sad, but, uh, you know, I hope they're coming up with a plan to replace the Land Cruiser soon, uh, because it's a very good large SUV, um, you know, I could never afford a $90,000 SUV anytime soon, but, uh, it's definitely a very cool vehicle to have at any point in time, and, uh, you know, having just one kind of hidden away, uh, really kind of sucked, uh, but Toyota, you know, they seem to be knowing what they're doing, and that's usually a very, very good thing. Uh, over at the Volkswagen booth, uh, they had some interesting stuff lined up, uh, specifically uh, talking about uh, the new Atlas uh, Cross Sport. Uh, basically, it's the two-row version of the Atlas. Uh, overall, you know, not too visually different from the updated Atlas that they also showed off in Chicago. Um, really, it brings the two vehicles in line for the most part. And uh, I have to say, you know, it makes sense. Uh, I guess the people who have Atlases really like them. The people who have tested Atlases really like them. Uh, I find the Atlas incredibly boring and completely nondescript. And maybe that is a good thing for some people. But uh, I just, you know, don't care for it. It's just one of those things that's there. Uh, they had one GTI to show off, which kind of goes to show where their priorities are as a company right now, uh, which is not with automobiles. Uh, they had one Arteon, they had one Passat, and one Jetta, uh, but they had, you know, six different versions of the Atlas, and uh, it's kind of sad uh, where things are at with Volkswagen. Uh, also, not too far away from them was the Chrysler uh, Dodge and Jeep booth. Uh, also Ram, I guess, in that group as well. Uh, their stand was absolutely massive. Uh, the number of people, just like Toyota, crammed into there looking at their cars was unbelievable. Uh, Dodge had an insane number of Challengers and Chargers there because, well, that's the only thing that they really make and sell anymore. Yes, the Durango exists, but it didn't really seem like people were all that interested in it. Uh, Ram had a bazillion different versions of the 1500, the 1500 Classic, the 2500, 3500 on up. Uh, nothing really important to note out of any of those there. Uh, other than I was surprised to see a Ram 1500 Classic, uh, what do they call it, the Black Wizard? I'm totally blanking on the name of it, something wizard. Uh, I was unaware that they were still making this version of the truck. Uh, I thought the 1500 Classic died this year, uh, but apparently not. They're going to continue making the older version of the truck with some of the updated things uh, for a little while longer. Uh, that definitely caught me by surprise. Uh, Jeep really didn't have anything special other than the new Gladiator Mojave, which we talked about in a previous episode of the show. Uh, it definitely looks the part. It looks tough. It definitely seems like the one to get over the Rubicon. Uh, no word on pricing, no word on what other changes come with it other than, you know, the aforementioned suspension and tire options. But, uh, yeah, it's a Jeep 
display, <laughs> I guess. Uh, the big news, I think, for Chrysler overall was, of course, the Pacifica. We talked about the Pacifica on a previous episode of the show. Uh, I have to say, in person, the new front end uh, isn't quite as offensive as what it looks in pictures. I still don't love it as much as the old Pacifica front end, uh, but I suppose if you want the old Pacifica front end with the new Pacifica technology, they will be selling a version of the Pacifica this year with all-wheel drive closer towards the end of the year. Um, so if you got the money, uh, it's definitely worth, I think, looking into just because the older one I still think looks a little bit better. That being said, the updated Pacifica is downright amazing. Uh, I, I, I loved that vehicle quite a bit, uh, in person, you know, the face is, is what it is. The back end looks fantastic. The new interior updates really give it a more up upscale, more well-thought-out kind of look. It's not a massive departure from what we have now, but it's enough to, you know, be noticeable. Uh, the new Pinnacle trim looks fantastic. Uh, you know, again, if you've got $50,000 to spend on a new luxury vehicle, uh, I think the Chrysler Pacifica Pinnacle makes a good argument for itself if you're willing to deal with the depreciation that comes with it. Uh, I posted a thing on Twitter a while back talking about, you know, if you got 50k to spend, do you get a base trim Genesis GV80 or do you get a Pacifica uh, Pinnacle all-wheel drive? And uh, people seem kind of split on it. Uh, the GV80 is one thing, but the Pinnacle with all-wheel drive might be a little bit nicer uh, depending on how the GV80 trims end up stacking up. But uh, yeah, I'm really, really impressed with the van. Uh, it looks fantastic. I, I, I just think it's the bee's knees, I think, right now for 2021 uh, new cars here in the United States. Uh, one weird thing that kind of parked next to the Fiat Chrysler booth uh, was a Mercedes-Benz... Uh, what do you want to call it? This Mercedes-Benz Metris. Uh, Mercedes didn't have a stand there, nor did BMW, nor did Volvo. Uh, but Mercedes had an appearance for their work vans, which seemed really strange. Uh, nevertheless, they had a seemingly countless number of work vans there, uh, all under the Metris name, one of which was uh, their new camper van that they're going to start selling here in the U.S. later this year. Uh, this camper van was co-developed with a uh, van modification company. Uh, I think it's out in Oregon or Washington. Uh, anyway, they're going to start selling these to basically be the successor to the old Volkswagen camper vans. Uh, pricing wasn't really talked about. Uh, there wasn't a ton of information about them, but... Uh, Seeing a lot of these different Metris vans was very interesting, to say the least. Uh, really seems like Mercedes wants to get people to buy these vans, and uh, it sounds like they are pretty good things. So, you know, maybe they're worth looking at if you're in the market. Ford uh, had a very large booth next to that that contained a lot of vehicles that, uh, well, are known quantities, I guess, at this point. Uh, they really didn't have anything new to show off other than the new Ford F-250. They did have a Tremor model uh, there on site, uh, just like the Chevy Silverado, with which I think is too large for what it is. Uh, the Tremor F-250 is also too large for what it is. Uh, when I can barely see, you know, well, I guess, you know, I'm tall enough to see over the top of the hood, but, you know, I gotta take a big step to get in, and I'm six feet tall with longer legs. Uh, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Uh, still, you know, people thinking they want to show off how tough they are and how cool they are with a tremor. Uh, you know, go for it. Do your thing. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a truck. 
to say the least. Uh, they also had their special edition Harley Davidson model, which I think is like some of those GM ones that we talked about previously. Uh, just fancy wheels, jacked up suspension, F-250 base. Yeah, you kind of get an idea what it is. I wasn't blown away with it. There were a lot of people who were really interested in it. They were standing around it, uh, you know, to each their own, I guess. But uh, yeah, it seems weird that it, that announcement came after the GM ones got announced. So uh, also Harley Davidson just like passing out, you know, special edition models left and right uh, for these things seems kind of weird too. Uh, maybe the things that I liked the most at the Ford display, uh, weirdly enough, is something that I could just do at my local dealer. Uh, Ford managed to bring three different trim levels of the Ranger and park them right next to each other. Uh, so you could really kind of compare cab sizes, layouts, what the base spec is and what the highest spec is. And that was really cool. Uh, so they had an XL uh, basically completely stripped out model. Uh, it was an XL rear wheel drive, uh, long bed, uh, extended cab, uh, basically had no options on it. It was 25 grand, uh, according to the window sticker. Uh, really cool to see a base trim Ranger in person because generally speaking, you're not going to see base trim Rangers all that often. Uh, they also brought in a Ranger XL with the STX appearance package. Um, that particular model, had four-wheel drive, uh, also had the extended cab, but it had a short bed. Um, I think it's one of those Rangers that looks really, really good, uh, but the price jumped up a bit. I think the price was just over 30 grand, and I don't 100% feel like you got five grand worth of options by just ticking the four-wheel drive box and getting a few appearance things. Uh, it still doesn't have a touchscreen system in the dash. Uh, you're using a really basic Ford Sync setup, which is arguably still pretty competent in 2020, uh, but not having an Android Auto and Apple CarPlay system standard in the Ranger just seems like you're being robbed at gunpoint. Um, and that, you know, was really kind of put into perspective when you saw uh, the up-level, I think it was a Lariat parked next to it, uh, Lariat crew cab with a short bed. And uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, for almost 40 grand, that seems like you're also being robbed at gunpoint, but it kind of puts into perspective what, you know, 15 grand worth of options looks like on these trucks. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think the STX is a really interesting thing, but getting anything other than a modestly equipped XLT uh, seems like a weird idea with the Ranger. That being said, the STX model looks really good, so... It's all subjective, I suppose, and what you care most about uh, that determines where those things end up. Uh, they did have the Mustang Mach-E at the uh, Chicago Auto Show. It's one of the few public appearances that this vehicle has made uh, in the past several months since it's been announced. Uh, overall, you know, it uses Mustang styling cues. Uh, it's a little bit bigger than a Ford Escape. Uh, it's not that much bigger than a Ford Escape. Uh, I think it's perfectly fine in every sense of the words of saying it's perfectly fine and that's really all you could say because you couldn't get that close to it uh you couldn't touch it you couldn't really look into it uh the Mach-E seems cool uh I think Ford is going to sell a lot of them uh, especially since they seem to be delivering on the price and range quotient for this vehicle uh it seems like it is going to be a very good competitor for the Tesla Model Y uh, but that's still a vehicle that we don't know an awful lot about. So 
Uh, I'm looking forward to the head-to-head comparisons, but the Ford, at least based on what we saw, I think is going to be a very compelling alternative uh, to that. And uh, really, you know, in the end, I I think they did a bang-up job with it. It looks very, very good. Now, comparing it to something that is similar-sized and also looks very good, but might not be on the inside, uh, Ford also had a weird thing where they brought several different versions of the Escape to the show. Uh, They had some of the upper titanium, I think they still call it the titanium trim on the high end, Uh, they had a mid-level SE, and then they had a base trim S model. Now, I had never seen a base trim S model in person. You almost never see them on dealer lots, but Ford brought one to the show, and I saw what was arguably one of the most comic, comedic things I think I've ever seen in a new car uh, in a very, very long time. So if you know the Ford Escape, you know, they look pretty premium on the outside. Um, The body shape is very European. It's got a lot of nice, you know, touches in terms of design that make it look very up-to-date and modern. Uh, The first giveaway that Ford started cost-cutting on this particular model was the hubcaps. Uh, They were embarrassingly bad. They looked like tiny, flimsy, super thin pieces of plastic attached to a steel wheel. Uh, And ultimately, the the only conclusion I could really make from that was they need to just rip those hubcaps off and just sell the freaking Escape with Steelies. That would look better at this point uh, than what they equip with this S model standard. Uh, I hopped in the back of the car first. You know, you still get the sliding rear seats with a little bit of the tilt adjustment. You know, you're not going to be in too much of a penalty box. Uh, But when you climb in the front and you look at the center stack, uh, you're greeted with what I can only describe as something that looks like a Sega Game Gear. Uh, It's this tiny, itty-bitty little screen, uh, you know, maybe three inches across. Maybe a little bit more. Maybe it's a four-inch diagonal screen. We'll give Ford the benefit of the doubt and say four-inch screen. Uh, something that's the size of maybe like an iPhone 4. Uh, with six hard plastic buttons on the left side and on the right side of it uh, for you to use as your radio control. Uh, it is laughably bad, especially when you can tell right away that this is the regular center stack. It's just a small, tiny piece of plastic uh, where a screen would otherwise go on this vehicle uh, that really just speaks volumes to how, many, how much Ford probably doesn't want to sell you an S model. Uh, but at the same time, you know, how these motherfuckers, you know, basically steal money from you uh, when you're trying to option these things. Uh, it is laughably bad. And it also had me wondering if this was yet another exercise where Ford, uh, you know, does the thing that Chevy has done previously, where uh, it's known on the, I think it was the Sonic and the Cruze, uh, you could buy any model of the Sonic and or Cruze. Cheapest one, highest one. Uh, If you swapped the higher end trim steering wheel into a lower trim model, uh, you would get all of the functions, uh, radio controls, cruise control, all that stuff, uh, through the steering wheel into the car that you would have get on the higher trim one. All you had to pay was $300 for a new steering wheel, uh, and it would work. And it has me wondering, at least with this Ford, that if you were to pull that plastic radio thing off and somehow get the LCD screen from another model, I don't know how much that would cost, but if you were to plug that in, would it work? Would that be an easy way to save a couple thousand dollars and still get, you know, the base trim version, but with, you know, the thing that everybody wants? Uh, you know, I'm I'm just taking a guess here and saying it's a possibility. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it was definitely weird to see in person, to say the least. Uh, Ford also did have the, uh, what do they call it, the carbon, black carbon edition of the Ford GT. I think I've said the name wrong. Uh, I think we also talked about it on the, liquid carbon. That's the name of the thing. Jeez. Uh, it's the hand-woven Ford GT with 20 extra horsepower. Uh, it looks really good in person. If you've ever seen a Ford GT in person, you know what the car looks like. The only difference is, is these are carbon fiber panels that are basically just sealed uh, with a clear coat. Uh, Ford hand selects the panels that come off the assembly line to match the weave as best they can across the car. Uh, they're only going to build 20 a year for the next two years while they're still making the Ford GT. Uh, they haven't said that if all of the liquid carbons have been ordered as of yet, uh, but they're basically offering it to the people who have been allowed the privilege to purchase a GT as an option. Uh, so we'll see how many end up sneaking out. Um, that being said, you know, if you've got the money to buy a Ford GT, there's a good chance you have enough money to get the liquid carbon package. And in the end, I don't know why you wouldn't. Uh, the car looks absolutely incredible in the carbon finish. Uh, you know, maybe you might miss the golf livery at first. Uh, but in the end, I think the liquid carbon looks really, really nice. Uh, and it'd definitely be the one I would want to get. Moving on through the show, uh, you know, Alfa Romeo is there. They make cars that aren't very reliable, and they uh, ignored that <laughs> for the most part. Uh, they were parked across the way from Genesis, who had uh, several different models available for you to look at, including the G70, the G80, the all-new G90, and in particular, the all-new GV80. Uh, the G90s first, you know... Incredible cars. If you know a G90, you know that they're already quite good. Uh, this new version, I think, is an update, slightly updated chassis, new exterior bits, some updates in the interior. Um, actually, I don't even know if it's a new chassis, but nevertheless, they gave it quite a few upgrades to consider it a mostly new car. Uh, the big deep dish wheels look incredible. Uh, I, I can't believe that they're making you know, a full trim, full fat luxury car for 60 grand. That's as good as what this thing is. Uh, if you're a wealthy person and you're spending, you know, the obscene amount of money on a Mercedes or an Audi or a BMW, uh, or even to some extent, a Lexus, I think you're throwing your money away. Genesis is really doing a good job. And I think people who have taste that don't want to necessarily be ostentatious about it, I think are going to start getting these Genesis's very soon. Uh, and the GDV80, I think, is a good indication of that. Uh, I, like many other cars at the show, there were a lot of people around, a lot of them, uh, but consistently people looking at, touching, sitting in, talking about how much they were impressed by it. Uh, I don't think there was a car that came close to the GV80 at this show. Uh, it got to the point where I didn't even get a chance to sit in it. Uh, it, it was too crowded with people. I didn't feel like waiting. I had other stuff I wanted to look at. Uh, but they had the green version with the green leather interior. The green leather looked supple and beautiful and great. And, you know, more cars need to come with green leather interiors again. Uh, the styling on the GV80 is bang on with where things need to be in 2020. I think they're going to sell a shitload of these SUVs, uh, this year once they finally go on sale. I, I, I'm really surprised by it. I'm really blown away, uh, by how good these things look, um, so I'm, I'm eager to see them in person. I'm also eager to see what a base trim version looks like. Uh, the GV80 that was at the show uh, had the 22-inch wheels, the Bentley-looking ones. Uh, I don't think that green leather is available on all the trims. So I'm making the assumption uh, that it was not a base trim 
excuse me, not a base trim model. So yeah, I'm interested to see what lower trims get. I'm interested to see what 20, or excuse me, $50,000 gets you in a GV80 versus a fully loaded one, which is supposed to start around 65, less than 70. Um, so I'm interested to see where that, that $10,000 basically gets you uh, for a base trim model. Uh, Infinity was there with some stuff. Uh, I, they had a very cool stand, but they they didn't really have much to show off. And it's kind of, you know, again, just like Nissan goes to show how poorly the product planners have been doing. Uh, Infinity is saying that there's going to be a big revolutionary product lineup change in 2021, 2022. What exactly that's going to be, I don't know. But uh, at least Tom Volk is talking about how Infinity is promising a lot, especially to him uh, as a reviewer. So curious to know what that's going to end up being uh lexus had a bevy of vehicles brought in uh many of which included you know f sport trims uh more luxury oriented trims uh really the only interesting thing that they had there that's worth noting is the lc500 convertible many of you know that i firmly believe that the lc500 is the best car on sale today anywhere in the world uh and dropping the top on the lc500 only makes it slightly better uh i would still get the coupe in that beautiful green color uh but they had this really nice looking yellow convertible that looked amazing you know you don't really lose anything in the interior with the top being off if anything it lets you experience the world a little bit more while it's still with us uh so that's a good thing uh the lc500 just a drop-dead gorgeous car. Uh, no surprise that the concept last year becoming a reality this year uh, didn't really shock anyone. Uh, I think the LC500 convertible goes on sale later this year. Uh, curious to know what the price difference will end up being between uh, the coupe and the convertible, but, uh, you know, not that I have any say in whether or not it's worth it or not. Uh, Porsche did have the Taycan uh, at the Chicago Auto Show, and I think really the only thing I could note about the Taycan is that as much as it is meant to be a Tesla Model S competitor, uh, it is a good bit smaller than a Tesla Model S. Uh, the Tesla Model S is roughly the size of like what a BMW 5 Series, Mercedes-Benz E-Class, Audi A8, um, or maybe not quite an A8, I guess it's technically an A6. Uh, you know, it's, it's a larger end luxury vehicle, you know, Toyota Avalon, things like that, about that size. Uh, the Taycan's a little bit smaller. Uh, and when I say a little bit smaller, it's definitely narrower. Uh, it's definitely lower, uh, lengthwise a good bit shorter. You know, you definitely notice it in the rear legroom of the car. They weren't letting people into it. Uh, but just looking at it, you know, you can definitely tell that the Taycan is definitely more of a driver's focused car. Uh, I would still probably spend the hundred and whatever grand on a Taycan versus a Model S at this point. Uh, but that being said, uh, it's, it's, it's a very good looking car. Porsche is going to really do well with this vehicle, I think. Uh, Porsche also had a couple different special 911s and Cayennes and so much else, but I, I, I didn't really care, to be honest with you. I love Porsche dearly, but uh, really the Taycan was the only thing that needed my attention in that neck of the woods. Uh, trying to think, what else was close by there? Uh, yeah, Cadillac and Buick and Lincoln, uh, they have things. We talked about Buick with the Encore GX. It really was the only vehicle in their stand. They had a couple of uh, regular Encores. They had a couple of the, uh, what do you want to call it, the, the bigger one, whose name I can't remember at the moment. That starts with an E. Uh, Enclave, there we go. They had a couple of those. Uh, they had one Regal, which was very sad. 
Lincoln had, you know, a very special version of the Aviator, of the Navigator, uh, of all these different things. And they had one little MKZ tucked away in the corner. Uh, they didn't even have a Continental, which seemed really surprising, uh, especially considering that they're still making that car for the foreseeable future. Uh, the Cadillac booth, however, I think is really the last thing we're going to really talk about here. Uh, Cadillac made quite the splash at the show, uh, having a pretty big booth, having a lot of vehicles in their booth. Uh, they did have the new CT4 and CT5 V models on display. Uh, having seen a CT5 in person already, nothing really new to talk about there. Uh, it's the replacement for the CTS. It's a little bit smaller than the current CTS. Uh, you know, it looks good. It seems like it's the right size. It's meant to be kind of a tweener between the 3 Series and the 5 Series, uh, just like this old CTS used to be, and I think that makes a lot of sense. The new uh, CT4, uh, at least they had a V-Spec model there, doesn't seem significantly smaller than the CT5, uh, maybe to the detriment of the CT4 overall, uh, but in the end, the CT4 is kind of meant to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Audi A3, the Mercedes-Benz A-Class, uh, the BMW 1 and 2 series. Uh, it doesn't seem that small, though. Uh, it's kind of, you know, taking off from where the ATS was, and as the ATS was the 3 Series competitor, you know... <laughs> Weird choices being made by GM overall at Cadillac right now. They did not have the Escalade there. I was kind of surprised about that. Um, but uh, yeah, the CT4, I think I think it's a good size vehicle. I think if you're looking for an entry-level luxury car, it's a good place to go. Uh, you're going to get a lot of content for your, excuse me, for your money, but you know, I, I really wish they would have done a wagon version of it. A wagon version with all-wheel drive and the powertrain from the standard CT4V. Uh, would have been really cool uh, with that diesel-like output of that 2.7 liter turbo. Uh, that thing would have been a fantastic highway cruiser, especially with the big butt on the back end. But uh, no plans for, to do any of that from Cadillac anytime soon. Uh, but interior-wise, you know, on the CT4, CT5, it's general GM fare. If you've been in a modern Buick or Cadillac or Chevy or whatever, uh, you're going to have an idea of what the materials feel like, what the layout looks like. Uh, it's it's all the same. Uh, I hate to say it, it's all the same. Uh, so, yeah, Cadillac, they're doing stuff. Uh, they did have a CT6 there. I guess it'll be the last thing we talk about for the Chicago Auto Show. Uh, the CT6 was there. Uh, sad, because, you know, the, the Hamtramck plant closed down. They're selling the last of the CT6s that are left. CT6 production will continue in China, uh, but we likely won't be getting the CT6 anymore after that, uh, depending on how this trade dispute works out. But, uh, yeah, I really, really like the CT6. I think it's going to make a really good uh, used car in a couple of years, assuming parts aren't ridiculously expensive for it. Um, but in the end, you know, I'm sad to see the CT6 go. A great car. It could have been so much more if GM would have spent the time and energy on it to develop it. Uh, but yeah, it, it just just a sad thing. Overall, the Chicago Auto Show, you know, it, it's great to see cars that people can actually afford to buy. It's great that automakers bring in different trim levels and other things. Uh, you know, that's always a nice thing to see in person. Uh, the numbers of crossovers and SUVs was out 
outrageous at this show. Uh, it seems very clear that that's the only thing people care about, especially at the way people were shopping. Uh, listening to people talk about how they don't like low-riding cars anymore uh, gave me pause several times just because, you know, these crossovers that they're looking at aren't that much taller than a regular car. Uh, but, you know, people are weird. They see a trend going, and that's the way it heads, and... You know, that's that's the way the cookie crumbles. Uh, the other big thing, of course, is that there were a lot of brands that weren't there. We touched on a few of them, BMW, Mercedes-Benz, Volvo, Tesla, none of which had any displays at the auto show this year. Uh, seems like a missed opportunity, but then again, you know, a lot of these car companies go, why spend the money when we can do all the marketing ourselves and still have the same amount of sales? And that does make a lot of sense. So yeah, the Chicago Auto Show. After we talked about it for 50 minutes, I apologize for rambling, but uh, after this, we're going to talk about some used luxury SUVs. So last up, I want to talk a little bit about luxury SUVs, uh, specifically with what's being purchased and talked about by the Fastlane car, the Fastlane truck, the Fastlane classics, over on YouTube, these guys out in Denver, Colorado, they buy up uh, used luxury vehicles pretty often. And they own them for the better part of a year. They drive them. They talk about their experiences with these vehicles. And one of the more notable ones that they've done as of late uh, was purchasing, I think it was like a 2004? I think it was 2004, uh, Volkswagen Touareg V8 with the full bit of off-road kit uh had the full air suspension had the uh you know two two uh two gear uh transfer case it had the locking uh rear and front differentials uh really i think they said it only was missing one or two things overall uh but it was a used vehicle that they were able to purchase uh for four thousand dollars and they owned it for more than a year uh, they did almost no modifications to it other than giving it some modern uh, BF Goodrich KO2 tires. Uh, I think they fixed a couple of things, but in the end, you know, this is a vehicle that they bought for four grand, maybe spent another $1,200 in tires to put on it, and sold it for exceptionally more uh, than what they paid for it. And really the kind of the story that they focused in on on this vehicle is that one, uh, it's an incredibly capable off-road SUV uh, that really has no reason to be as good off-road as it is. Uh, and that, you know, maybe they get a bad rap for reliability, but in the end, are they really that bad for a $4,000 off-road vehicle? Uh, they had no problems with it. What stuff did happen, they could largely fix in their own shop. Uh, not everybody has access to those kinds of tools and that kind of equipment, which is important to remember as always. Uh, but it got the brain going. And, you know, Toregs are very hard to find in the U.S. for whatever reason. I don't know why. Uh, just the same <clears throat> with a lot of this off-road kit. Uh, many of them were not purchased that way. Uh, so they somehow find a found a true unicorn vehicle they got one that was unmolested they got one that was well taken care of uh i i have to say that it it drove up the envy quotient quite a bit for me uh as somebody who had been a longtime vw fan who liked the initial release of the Touareg. uh <coughs> yeah it was pretty darn cool they've also done different things with land rovers as of late they had an old discovery uh that they maintained for a while they they put a beefed up suspension on it newer tires a few other uh overlanding bits of kit 
and they wanted to figure out if the old uh, discoveries, the initial discoveries, were really that bad to own. Uh, their ultimate thing that they figured out was, yeah, no, not really that bad. Uh, they bought it for a low sum of money. They sold it for a lot of money. Uh, they they seem to know how to find a way to buy well-maintained ones that are taken care of uh, and flip them pretty easily. Uh, they, they sold that Land Rover and they bought a new LR3 model. Uh, the LR3 was known for being quite unreliable. Uh, the one that they have has the Jaguar V8 uh, with the six-speed... <coughs> excuse me, the six-speed automatic. It's got the full bit of off-road kit. Uh, no leaks in the airbag suspension. Uh, no other issues with the truck as of late. Uh, again, they're going to try to keep us posted as it goes. Uh, but it kind of sent me down a rabbit hole with the LR3 in particular because I was unaware that when the LR3 first came out, they offered the 4-liter V6 from the Ford Explorer in the LR3. Uh, that V6 Explorer-powered model uh, was meant to be a cheaper uh, entry point uh, with which they eventually ended up giving it a lot of the luxury trim bits uh, if you wanted it in a higher trim SE model. Uh, I recently did some digging around me here in West Michigan, and I found one for sale down in Chicago like 130,000 miles on it. Looked like it was in pristine condition. Uh, looks like it was really well maintained with the Ford V6, uh, with the six-speed automatic, uh, with all the luxury accoutrement that you would need other than a few other missing bits. It didn't have the navigation system. I think that was the one thing that was missing. It was like $9,000. Uh, not a small amount of money, but for somebody who, you know, would want to go off-roading and want or is maybe what's a good way to put this is willing to deal with the air suspension because the air suspension will inevitably fail in these vehicles uh it sounds like you know it, it could be a largely worry-free luxury experience uh the brakes a lot of the other things were meant to be cheaper in this vehicle to be a little more reliable uh to not be quite as crazy as the range rover uh etc but uh the the uh, Land Rover LR3 seems to be an interesting one, and I'm watching very closely uh, that vehicle that they're owning to see how it goes, because I like the Land Rovers quite a bit from that era. That was kind of the tail end of the Ford ownership before they swung into the JLR experience under Tata, and uh, yeah, they, they were over-engineered in some aspects uh and other ones they had you know really basic ford bits and bobs underneath them uh but <clears throat> yeah they they look good they drive good i don't know i mean they just really appeal to me at a base factor and i kind of hope that when they sell their lr3 they get around to doing an lr2 uh, i really like the lr2s for some reason i don't know why uh those in particular had weird combinations of ford and volvo parts underneath them um <clears throat> and i'd be really curious to know if those are really reliable at all either now, the current one that kind of spurred this story altogether uh, is their experience with buying a first-generation Mercedes ML. Uh, they recently bought, I think it's a 2001? 2000? Maybe a 99? It's, it's not quite the first year. The first year was 97. Uh, 
anyway, it's a, it's a little bit of a later version of the ML320. Uh, so that had the 3.2 liter straight six, I believe, uh, made it to a five-speed automatic. These uh, Mercedes-Benzes had two-speed transfer cases. These are the first Mercedes-Benzes built in the United States at a factory down in Alabama. Uh, they were known for being incredibly unreliable, uh, with a lot of quality control issues to start. Uh, and so basically they're putting, you know, their, their, uh, what's the word I'm trying to use here? They're, they're, they're putting their, their previous experiences, uh, to the test, I guess, to say with this particular model. And while driving it back to Colorado from Georgia, uh, they had an alternator blowout and they had to replace it on the road before they could get it back to Denver fully. Uh, that thus far has seemed to be the only super negative experience they've had with this truck. And as somebody who really liked the ML when it was in uh, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, you know, they, they've always looked cool. Uh, it seems like their interiors really haven't held up particularly well. Some of the body panels haven't held up particularly well, especially with the earlier plastic fendered models, which I actually like quite a bit. Uh, yeah, they, they just, you know... It's a vehicle that had a lot of issues to begin with. Mercedes didn't seem ready to fix them quite a quite for quite a while into its manufactured thing. So it sounds like it's like 2001 and 2002 models are the good ones to get. Uh, the later ones with the new 3.5 liter engine uh, missed some things. And then the later versions of the truck overall just didn't have any off-road capability like the first gen did. Over and over and over again, basically... Uh, these things were over-engineered in some basic points and really under-engineered in others. And uh, you kind of get what you pay for. If you've got a model that's been really well-maintained, uh, had an owner that really cared about it, you're probably going to get a good ML320. If you find one that's changed hands quite a few times, probably has been uh, neglected in many different ways in terms of parts and reliability, uh, you're probably going to end up paying a lot more for it in the long run. Just looking online around me here in West Michigan, the Chicagoland area, uh, it's been really hard to find any that have uh, less than 200,000 miles. I think the best deal I found was one that was somewhere around like 130 to 150,000 miles, single owner, original owner. Uh, they took really good care of it. Uh, it had some cracks in the driver's seat leather, which isn't the worst thing in the world, but, you know, some dings for points from me. Um, but they wanted like 7500 bucks for it, and that seemed just a little high. I don't really know where the threshold is on these in terms of long-distance reliability, but given how many I was able to find with 200, 215, 230, 250,000 miles, uh, they must hold up pretty well, all things considered. So, uh, again, you know, what's the point of this? Well, I just kind of want to talk about used luxury SUVs. They did a big rundown on the show uh, on the channel later on about what kind of used German luxury SUVs for off-roading they're out there. Uh, they talked about, you know, which models are good to get, which ones aren't, uh, which ones offered what things, which ones didn't. Uh, basically, the gist of the matter is if you're looking strictly for off-road capability, uh, the ML320 and the last of the uh, first generation models with the 3.5 liters of the ML350. Those are very good off-road. The Volkswagen Touareg with the right off-road equipment is very good off-road. Um, the V6 models didn't get a lot of that stuff, but the V8 did have it. Uh, but some V6 models did, so you gotta like run like VIN checks like crazy to see what equipment is on which vehicle to make a decision for you. Apparently all of the Audis are not good off-road. 
only the first gen uh, Porsche Cayennes are good off-road. The second gen and third gen ones aren't. Uh, BMWs are not good off-road. Uh, it's just a whole run of stuff. Land Rovers and Range Rovers obviously are good off-road. Uh, you know, it's an interesting gamut that you can run. And so I hope they continue buying these weird off-road vehicles uh, to kind of see if they are reliable or not. Because, uh, you know, as somebody who's looking to buy a car, not to say that an SUV like that would necessarily be what I'd want to get long term, but, you know, it's definitely a little bit of a curiosity, to say the least, for some of these things, especially those Land Rovers. I like those Land Rovers quite a bit, but uh, the Mercedes-Benz is too. So hopefully, you know, they prove to be somewhat reliable, but uh, if you're curious at all, I'd definitely head on over to, uh, let's see, it's the Fastlane Car, the Fastlane Truck, and the Fastlane Classics. Uh, they run these episodes on all these different channels at different times. Uh, it's definitely worth checking out if you're at all interested. I highly recommend it. Well, guys, that just about wraps up this episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brett Eslake, and you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Y-S-S-M-A-N. And you can follow along with episodes of this show at anchor.fm slash salvage title. Uh, like I said up at the top of the show, uh, make sure you hit that subscribe button. We're on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and so much more. Uh, you know, love building out this audience. Appreciate any feedback you guys might have. Uh, that's always a good thing. As I stated earlier on in this episode, uh, I'm hoping to do one later this week talking about the uh, Kia Seltos reviews, uh, some of the points that are coming up and some of those I think are interesting. Uh, it sounds like some of the dealers here in West Michigan already have them, uh, so I definitely want to go out and take a look. A lot of these seem to be S models. There are a few uh, LE models or LX models, I guess it is. Uh, I want to see what the base base trim uh, version of the Seltos looks like. A couple of them have the upper trim models. Uh, I'd love to give one of the CVT versions a go because a lot of the reviews that I've been reading have not been in the CVT models, and that's a little weird to say the least uh, overall. Uh, Kia also announced the new Sorento today. Details are forthcoming, but the pictures are out, and it looks really good. I'm very, very impressed. Uh, they also pulled the wraps off uh, the sister car company, Hyundai, with the i20. Uh, the i20, I don't think, has ever been sold here in the U.S., but I might be getting that mistaken, because I think the i20 is the accent. Uh, I don't remember how it all works, but nevertheless, the i20 looks absolutely incredible. Uh, again, Kia, Hyundai, Hyundai, Kia, they're on a roll when it comes to design, manufacturing, engineering, all that stuff. Uh, so lots of thoughts about that later this week. Uh, but anyway, guys, until that next episode, uh, we'll see you sometime soon. Uh, I hope you have a good rest of your week. If you're in an area with snow and ice, make sure you are driving carefully and we will see you on the next episode of the Salvage Title Podcast.